Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is the best of free expression with Jerry Baker, 2022. Welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Delighted you're joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Very happy and privileged to be joined this week by Condoleezza Rice, of course, who was former Secretary of State in the George W. Bush administration, before that National Security Advisor to President George W. Bush. One question, Madam Secretary. It's a personal question, really, but also about the broader politics of our time in America today. You are a very prominent African-American woman, and the Hoover Institution is the sort of conservative cuckoo in the fairly kind of, I think it's fair to say, sort of liberal nest of Stanford University, and sometimes as some, uh, I'm sure you have perfectly good relations with everybody at Stanford, but I know there are sometimes some question marks, specifically on the part of the people many of the faculty of Stanford about Hoover, given your own personal history, your own personal identity, and the climate that we're seeing in this country, particularly on university campuses, which I think it's fair to say is progressive, if you can call it that, very hostile in many respects to free speech. How concerned are you about the state of free speech in America, but particularly the state of free inquiry on the major university campuses, Stanford University, all these major universities, great universities with genuine global standing. And yet you hear so many cases of people whose views don't conform to the kind of liberal orthodoxy in these places being challenged, being silenced, some cases actually being thrown out of some of these universities or attempts to get throw them out of some of these universities. How much of a problem do we have right now in terms of free speech and free inquiry at our major universities? Well, I do think we have a problem of, uh, let me call it ideological diversity in our universities. And that means that when people exercise the right to say things that are not popular or that are not a part of the orthodoxy, they don't always find a very hospitable environment. One of the things we do at the Hoover Institution is provide some of that ideological diversity, actually, although we are within ourselves. Do they like it at Stanford? Well, actually, you know, about two-thirds of our senior fellows are actually jointly appointed at Stanford. And we have a lot of students who come to our midst. I think that it's really important if you're going to, as the Stanford president says, search for truth, you're going to have to do that in a way that people get to raise arguments that might be uncomfortable. And we have gone to a place where we talk so much about the comfort of one group or another that we forget that the purpose of education is to stretch your mind, to stretch the limits, to make you engage ideas that you may find hard, and to do it in a way that makes you defend the views that you hold. I tell my students all the time, if you find yourself constantly in the company of people who say amen to everything you say, find other company. Just because you think it, it's not necessarily so. And in a university, more than any place, we have to hold to that principle that we are going to present our arguments, we're going to argue civilly, and we're going to try to come to conclusions. If we disagree, that's okay too, because that's how knowledge moves forward. I think we're making a little progress. We have had a lot of calls around here at Stanford for opportunities for civil discourse. The Hoover Institution continues to bring people to campus from a wide variety of views. And I'm hopeful that our students, who after all are the ones that we most need to hold this principle for, that our students feel that they can develop intellectually without a repressive environment in which they feel that they can't say certain things because it would not be tolerated. That would be the death of great university. And by the way, the 
death of democracy. And so I think we're making progress. Do you think the leadership of major American universities has been robust enough in its defense of free speech? And so many of these places seem to have just bowed before the mob, really, on so many cases. No, I actually don't think that much of the leadership has been strong enough in this regard. You know, I would call out University of Chicago here, and a lot of people are now starting to follow and look at these Chicago principles. I had one colleague say that he thinks we should think about it is that if students want to come to a place where they're just going to hear themselves echoed, maybe we should tell them to find another place because that's not our work. That's not our job. And I do like it when university presidents make it very clear that that's where they stand as well. My guest is Douglas Murray, prolific author, commentator, and public intellectual. Douglas has been one of the most effective and widely heard voices in recent years in the struggle against the seemingly inexorable march of progressive ideology through the culture, institutions, and politics of the West. His recent books have established him as one of the sharpest observers and critics of the trends that have in the last decade or so undermined the very cohesion and purpose of the great Western democracies. Why do you think it's become so passionate and so intense and this this war has been waged so aggressively recently? I mean, it is striking that 30 years ago, in our lifetimes, the West was triumphant. We'd won the Cold War. We'd reached the end of history in Frank Fukuyama's famous phrase, our values. You know, we always acknowledged our flaws. We'd always acknowledged America. God knows not a person country founded with slavery and persecution and other things, but we'd progressed, we'd achieved this extraordinary civilizational success, and on top of that, it was so successful that we not only triumphed over all comers, totalitarian states and others, but actually all countries kind of wanted to be like us. That was just 30 years ago. Now, here we are a generation later, where we, as exactly as you describe, we're actually being taught that our civilization is intrinsically evil, that it actually needs to be owned and devalued and rejected. How did that change so quickly? Well, to sort of steel man, as it were, the people who I'm critiquing, to give their argument its strongest play, you could say that this is a natural swing, a sort of to and fro of the ideological and historical pendulum. But perhaps not in our lifetimes, but not long before, there was a sort of rather simplistic narrative of the West, which was taught, which covered over and elided various of the nastier things that had happened. And that therefore there was sort of a need to rectify that, a need for revisionist looks at history, a need for a new look at colonialism, a new look at slavery. You could say that, and that, that what has been going on in recent years is that process. Why have these various sort of people who write and talk about race in America, why have they come in recent years for all of the heroes of the Enlightenment? And they say the steel man argument is to say, well, they've done it because these Enlightenment philosophers were alive in a time of colonialism, were alive in a time of slavery. Some of them benefited financially. Some of them said what things that we now regard as ugly, and that therefore this is some long overdue correction. The reason I don't actually believe that that is the case is it's such an odd time for such a correction to occur. Contra Ibram X, Kendi D'Angelo and others, it is not as if America or Britain, for instance, have never had to confront their pasts before. It is not as though America and Britain did not confront the questions of slavery or colonialism in the 19th century. Indeed, Britain spent a significant amount of her national wealth not just abolishing slavery herself, but policing the high seas in order to make sure that the slave trade was abolished across the globe. This happened at great cost to households across the country. So it isn't as if this wasn't confronted before. America fought a very bloody 
very brutal civil war about this in the midst of the 19th century. So I think that this claim that, as it were, this is overdue correcting and reframing is disingenuous. It's done by people who pretend, as it happens, that the last two centuries of debate did not occur, as if the last two centuries of reform did not occur. And just a quick thing on that, I think that this thing you mentioned, Jerry, about America not being perfect at its founding, I do throw the question out there, which country is? Which society is? The whole history of humanity is people going to other places and taking their things if they're stronger. It's only in recent centuries, and I have to say in the Western world most prominently, that we've had, for instance, the principle of the peaceful handover of power. Historically, that is a highly unusual thing. Globally, still today, it's not the norm. So when we look at our own pasts, we also have to look at them in that context. What was the rest of the world doing? If they were doing the same things as us, then sure, we can hold ourselves to our highest standard. But to hold ourselves to a standard that is totally disassociated from the context that the past was happening, it reveals, I think, a kind of vengeance. And that is the simple answer to your question, Jerry, is what we are really talking about are, to quote Nietzsche, people who talk of justice but mean revenge. An old friend, Neil Ferguson, a very distinguished historian, currently the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and Managing Director of Greenmantle, an investment advisory firm. But of course, he's been a professor at Oxford, Harvard, and elsewhere. And I think, Neil, also, if I may say, so you're in very much involved in the founding of this new university committed to principles of free speech, University of Austin. That's right, isn't it? Yes, I'm one of the founding trustees of the University of Austin. So I wear multiple hats these days. It's clear now, and everything you've just said about Europe and the reawakening of a kind of European a strategic identity, the reawakening of all of us to the threat posed from Russia, that this is going to require at least a split focus, if you like. And we're going to have to, and by the way, given that Russia and China seem to have moved together so much in the last few years, perhaps that's the way to deal with it, that there's a kind of a unifying force there in the two countries. It seems to me to complicate, and you know, the US used to have a military doctrine that could fight two major wars at one time. I think that's probably been jettisoned more, I think it, not formally, but I think most people think it's pretty difficult. Where does it leave US? How does this change US grand strategy now? I think the interesting thing about the Trump administration was that it produced a very successful transformation of national security strategy. And that was in large measure the achievement of H.R. McMaster, now my colleague at Hoover, and Nadia Shadlow, his colleague at the National Security Council. This reorientation was important because it recognized that the United States faced two really major strategic rivals in China and Russia and two rogue regimes, for want of a better term, in Iran and North Korea. And if you compare that 2017 document with the previous iteration that Susan Rice did for Barack Obama, it's the difference between night and day. The problem is that I think in the wake of Joe Biden's election, there was a sense that the priority was China. And this reminds me of the debates that went on during World War II about whether it should be Pacific first or Europe first. The reality is that you can't just pick one of the rivals and pretend the other one isn't a problem. The most remarkable geopolitical feature of our time is the proximity of Russia and China to one another, the closeness of the relationship between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. I don't think Putin could have done this without a clear reassurance from Xi that he had his back. I think it won't last. 
I mean, it's a marriage of convenience. It's a historical anomaly. At some point, the conflicts of interest between Russia and China will manifest themselves. But we can't make that happen. And we are essentially in the situation that we were in in the period after 1949, right through the 1950s, when Russia and China were on the same team. It's just that then Russia was the senior partner. And you'll recall that that was the time of the Korean War, a war that essentially Stalin willed, but Mao had to fight. Now the roles are reversed. It's Russia that plays second fiddle. And I think what's happening is that the Chinese are watching how this plays out and they're taking the following lessons. Number one, the Americans prefer sanctions to actual fighting, and it will be much harder for them to sanction us, China, because sanctioning China has much more economic implications for the United States than sanctioning Russia. Number two, they'll say, look, these Ukrainians are putting up a pretty stiff fight. No way is that going to happen in Taiwan if we can achieve a successful invasion. And so I think the invasion of Taiwan is on the menu and on the menu for quite soon, not this year, because this year the Chinese have their hands full with the party congress and the extension of Xi Jinping's term in office. But it could be as soon as next year that we're looking at a Taiwan Strait crisis. And that's why this is so bad. I think this is worse than Jimmy Carter in 1979, because I think the combination of the Iranian revolution and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan posed less of a threat ultimately to the United States than this current crisis does. After the break, more of the best of free expression with Jerry Baker, 2022. Stay with us. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Now back to the best of free expression with Jerry Baker, 2022. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. Nicholas Eberstadt, an economist at the American Enterprise Institute, has documented the changing nature of U.S. employment over the years. In his 2016 book, Men Without Work, he chronicled one especially alarming trend, the sharp decline in the number of men with jobs. Millions of working-age men have been retreating from the labor force for years, and that trend has accelerated since the pandemic. He examines how the male exodus from work has now intensified, and how it's spreading, in fact, to other demographics. And he explains why this shift represents such a major challenge for the U.S. economy and for the country's future. So Nick, let's start with this phenomenon that you've been tracking for a long time, which has large implications for the US economy, which is the decline of working age men in the labor force. And if you would, if you just lay out some of the basic data, put it into historical context and explain what's been going on. Sure. What economists call prime working age men, it's pretty self-explanatory, guys 25 and 54 are still the backbone of the economy, and they have a tiny non-economic role in life also in raising families, raising children. Up until the 1960s, work rates for prime-age men in America were consistent and very high. And then starting in the mid-60s, something changed. And since about 1965, we have seen a relentless and almost invariant, consistent retreat from the workforce for those men. Today, the work rate for prime-age men is lower than it was in 
early 1940, which is the only really good measurement we have for the Great Depression, comes from the census of that year. At that time, the unemployment level for America was almost 15%, but work rates today are lower than they were for American men that age back in 1940. So we've got kind of a Great Depression-scale work problem for men on our hands in the U.S. right now. As you point out in the book, this is not in large part what we could call involuntary unemployment. A lot of this is voluntary removal from the workforce. But again, it's important to remember this is not captured in the unemployment figures. This is captured in the broader data that we have about the labor force. So millions of men who would, if we'd had employment participation at the rates that we'd had in the 1960s, what's happened to them? Where have they gone? I mean, is it some of them presumably longer education? Some of it is to do with disability. Give us the factors that have contributed to this remarkable decline. No, you put your finger on it. The difference between the Depression era and now is that if you didn't have a job back in 1940, it was because you were looking for one and you couldn't find it. If you're a guy who doesn't have work today, the odds are it's because you've dropped out of the workforce altogether. You're neither working nor looking for work. For every prime-age guy who's unemployed, there are over four who are neither working nor looking for work. We have this unworking army of over 7 million prime-age men in the United States today. Prime-age is 25 to 54. Yes, 25 to 54. And you know, it's kind of the key working group in the labor force. And we can parse that out a little bit. So about a tenth, maybe a little bit more than a tenth of this not-in-labor-force group, some of my brother nerds call them NILFs, about a tenth of them are full-time students who are getting ready to go back into the labor force to get better jobs with better skills. But almost nine-tenths of that group are what I believe on the other side of the ocean, you used to call them NEET, N-E-E-T, neither employed nor in education or training. It's a group that has basically dropped out from the labor economy. And how these men subsist and what they do with their time, I think, are pretty important questions for humanitarian reasons, but also for public policy. According to their self-reported data, According to time use surveys that the government submits to people who have all different walks of life for the Bureau of Labor Statistics, these labor force dropouts basically don't do civil society. They don't do worship, they don't do charity, they don't do volunteering work. Although they've got, you'd think, almost nothing but time on their hands, they don't do much help around the house with other people or housework. They don't get out of the house that much, they say. What they say they do is to watch screens. Now, the surveys don't tell us what screens they're watching or what's on them exactly, but they report clocking in about 2,000 hours a year in front of screens as if this were their full-time job. And other information says about half of these guys report using some sort of pain medication every day. So it's not just playing Call of Duty, it's playing Call of Duty stoned. 
And needless to say, this is not exactly the way to bulk up for skills that are going to get you back into the workforce. It's unfortunately much more likely to be a entry pathway to the now all too familiar deaths of despair that we're coping with in the United States. This week, I'm delighted to say that my guest is Ayan Hirsi Ali, celebrated writer and commentator. Ms. Ali was born in Somalia and brought up a Muslim. After a family fled persecution there, she was educated in the Netherlands, where she became a strong critic of Islam and Islamic culture and began a promising political career. After the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, she spoke out strongly against radical Islam and its apologists. Her stance earned her enemies, and she's been the object of repeated death threats from Islamist extremists. But her willingness to challenge orthodoxy has caused waves here in the United States, too, where she now lives. You've recently with a number of other prominent writers, you co-signed a statement in National Review, which caught my eye, which is about America's crisis of self-doubt, as you called it. You contained this quote. You said, the American project as such is under assault. Our history is the subject of a revisionist critique that is all-encompassing, unsparing, and very often flatly inaccurate. And I'm sure many of our listeners will absolutely agree with that. How do those of us who believe, actually, that for all its flaws, the American project is still probably the greatest achievement of human civilization. How do we fight back against this prevailing orthodoxy right now? I think we have to bring about the courage of standing up to them. I think on the one hand, we have a great deal of complacency. We are told constantly that we're polarized. But in my experience in America, the population is actually not that polarized. It's our elites and uh, different reasons for that. You are in the media business. In the media right now, for them to make any kind of money, they have to sell outrage. That's the business model. And so sometimes it appears as if everyone who lives in America is either a follower of Rachel Maddow or a follower of Sean Hannity. And that's not the case. But there is a great deal of complacency that what we're witnessing is something that's going to pass and it's going to pass on its own. And maybe that's the case. That would be the good news. But I'm much more worried than that. I think that every institution, top-down government and Colleges and universities, corporations, the entertainment business, even churches, every single institution is affected. And all the elites, that's the leaders in these institutions, are just not able to deal with it. And then there is the bottom-up aspect of it, where the family is falling apart, public schools, but increasingly also our private schools, are really not delivering the service of educating children. And this goes on and on. And I think if our institutions continue to be eroded in this way, then we are up against a very, very serious problem. It's the problem of implosion from within. And we are dealing with adversaries like China. And I think this war on Ukraine demonstrates how ruthless someone like a Putin is. And our young people, Gen Z and the millennials, seem to be almost oblivious to this. I listen to them and I talk to them about the war in Ukraine. It's like they're watching a game. You're either for this side or you're either for that side. They don't understand the implications. When I talk to young people about free speech, they think it's a right-wing tool to silence the left. They have no clue where it came from. They have no clue what it is to live in a society that's not free. Since you mentioned Ukraine, I should say, that I'd be interested to get your take on this. There are some people on the right in this case, some conservatives in this country who actually, well, perhaps before February the 24th, anyway, saw Vladimir Putin as an upholder of the very sort of civilizational values that you and I have been talking about as, you know, Christian Western values that he represented. I take it you don't share the view that Vladimir Putin's Russia is a sort of model of the civilization that we should be trying to create. 
No, but he had become adept at manipulating members of our elite, in this case, on the conservative side. And that's who we, we are an open society. And so obviously we are open to attacks from outside in ways that a closed society like China or many of the Middle Eastern countries are not. Iran is another one. But regardless of that, I still think that the conservatives, now that they can see what Putin's intentions were on display, that they won't have the same kind of luxury that the left has where the left can pretend for a very long time that these terrible ideas that they are promoting have no consequences. My guest is Michael Schellenberger. Michael is a fierce critic of green extremism, as we could call it, but he's no right-wing curmudgeon like me. He's a former Democratic candidate for office in California. But his critique of modern progressivism doesn't stop with climate. He's also written extensively on the state of American cities and how left-wing policies and leaders are basically destroying them. Last year, he published San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, which looks at how so many of the big cities in America characterized by violent crime, homelessness, and general disorder. And of course, this all despite progressives' claims that their policies and higher taxes are creating a future that we can all live in. What particularly are these policies that are leading to this damage, and how bad is the problem of urban America? It's worse than people think. I mean, I work on two issues, really, energy, the environment on the one hand, crime, drugs, homelessness on the other. And on the first, things are going much better than people realize. The trends are much more going in the right direction in terms of energy and the environment than people realize. Drugs, crime, and homelessness is much, much worse than people realize. It's going to be very difficult to bring down crime, deal with the drug epidemic, and deal with the homelessness crisis. In fact, it's actually just spread and got worse in going into other cities. What happened during the pandemic was, like so many other trends, an acceleration and intensification of pre-existing trends. Those trends included depolicing certain areas, certain crimes, reducing consequences for illegal and inappropriate behaviors, by which I mean some of the kind of, we call them quality of life behaviors, but things like public defecation, urination, petty theft, those aren't crimes that grab headlines, but they erode the fabric of a city and also deprive mentally ill people and drug addicts the interventions that they had previously received to get into treatment, to get the help they needed. I think the other thing that was going on is really starting with the Black Lives Matter protests in 2015, we saw a demoralization of the police and a pullback. They called it the Ferguson effect after the protests in Ferguson, Missouri, where the police would pull back from ordinary policing, including the investigation and just the deterrence of homicides. And then the result was an emboldenment of the criminal element. And I think what is interesting, because George Soros, the billionaire financier who had financed a lot of the efforts to de-police certain crimes, he wrote a defensive op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. He said he did acknowledge the withdrawal of police from policing as one of the factors behind higher crime. And I thought that was very interesting that he was willing to acknowledge that, but he didn't acknowledge that part of it, which is, of course, that the withdrawal of police is what emboldens criminal behavior. So you've seen just a breakdown of social order in a number of cities. Obviously, San Francisco, Los Angeles are the worst, but you've seen it in New York as well. A significant increase of people being pushed onto the subway tracks, a significant increase of behavioral disorders, as they get called, by people with addiction and mental illness. 
All of that on top of the fact that we never really had a proper psychiatric care system. We had psychiatric hospitals that we really shut down between the 50s and 1980s. So it's a crisis point. Drug overdose deaths rose from 17,000 in the year 2000 to 107,000 this year. So we're in a psychiatric crisis, in my view, and we haven't really even come to grips with that's what's going on. We've been very familiar with a lot of the opioid-related deaths, and a lot of that is not actually perhaps not even so much big American cities. We associate that perhaps more with sort of smaller cities across the country. But, I mean, that seems to be the result of a number of factors. But in what sense is it a result of progressive policies? How is that fueling that crisis? The underlying cause is a laxening, a loosening of strictness around law enforcement, but also around social values. I see it as sort of a single phenomenon. So you saw the overprescription of opioids. Pharmaceutical companies certainly deserve a lot of blame for that. So do medical doctors. But the ethos was that we were being too tough on people and that we were under-treating pain. To some extent, I think that's true. I think there's another part of it, though, that we were not properly treating psychiatric problems, mental illness. And to some another extent, I think we were justifying people becoming drug addicts out of the typical reasons people do, alienation, social isolation, loneliness, but also just because people want to have a good time. Well, then they switched to heroin and they switched to fentanyl. So by 2017, you had 70,000 people dying from drug overdoses. So it was already up from the 17,000 in the year 2000. But then you had this acceleration of fentanyl. I will say there's another drug that has been absolutely devastating that we don't talk about enough probably, and that's methamphetamine. That had been increasing at a pretty incremental basis really from the 1950s when it was being you know, used as speed, including as a prescription drug. But methamphetamine is contributing significantly to the behavioral disorders that we're seeing in the cities. So you see people in psychotic states screaming at invisible enemies, engaging in physical attacks and harassment. When people are psychotic, we don't know if it's due to schizophrenia or from methamphetamine, but the increased amount of it has to be driven to a large extent by methamphetamine abuse because schizophrenia we know is almost certainly a genetic triggered by environmental factors, whereas methamphetamine has become much more widespread in its use and, and the disorders associated with it. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks very much for listening. Please join us again next week for another exploration of the issues that are shaping our world. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>